First Peter chapter two, starting in verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. We've already talked about the setting of First Peter. It was a group of Christians in what is now modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. Peter was writing to them some 30 years after the resurrection, and he was trying to encourage them. He was trying to just help them to see how important it is that they continue to continue on in their faith, that they didn't, they didn't throw it away, they didn't make shipwreck of it. They continued to hang on. And continue in the midst of wondering sometimes, has God forsaken me? Why, why is it taking so long for the promises to be fulfilled? That's the setting that we find ourselves in in First Peter. Last week, he told them one of the remedies to that is to set their hope fully on the grace to be revealed to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He, in essence, told them to just keep reminding yourself of the gospel. Keep reminding yourself of your hope, which we talk a lot about, that that Christians need the gospel. We need to be reminded of the grace that will come to us continually to have our hearts be strengthened. And he said, you you should do this because you have tasted of the goodness of the Lord. That's how he ended the passage last week. Because you have tasted of the goodness of the Lord. Continue to remind yourself of the grace that's going to come. There are lots of different ways in which God in the, in the Bible describes conversion, describes those who come to Christ. Lots of different pictures. One is tasting. One of the things that, that he would say Christians are, are Christians are people who have tasted the goodness of the Lord. That he's good. They understand the goodness of the good news. It's sweet to their taste buds because they have tasted it. God is seen as good. Part of the Christian life is growing and seeing more of His goodness. That's why we need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. Keep reminding ourselves. Keep seeing more of that goodness. There are other ways that the Bible would describe conversion. It, it's in our vision statement, our purpose statement, our, our uh, statement of, of why we exist. That they would see. Christians are described as people who see something. They see something that unbelievers don't. They see the glory 
of God in the face of Christ. Again, the goodness of God in the face of Christ. Another way that they're described is in this text a little later of last week where it says you've been born again to a a living hope. Um, There are different ways that the Bible talks about conversion. But here this morning now, what we're going to pick it up, because they have tasted, because they've tasted the goodness of the Lord, they've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, he, he says this to them now in verse 4. Verse 3 says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, then as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, and then he goes on to describe some things that are happening in their lives. But, but what I want us to catch first is, if you've tasted of the goodness of the Lord, come to Him. You can come to Him. In fact, if you've not tasted, if you've not passed from death to life, you, you can't come to Him. That's, that's one of the descriptions between a believer and an unbeliever. An unbeliever can't come. There's a, there's a the barrier for them. But because of Christ, we can come. Because of the grace of Christ, the wrath of God is gone. It's no longer against us. And we can come to Him. The, the, the inference of this particular um, verb in this, this line that I just read to you is, is the kind of coming that the priest did in the Old Testament. That kind of coming, coming into worship. One of the wonderful things about the Gospel, one of the wonderful things about the goodness of God in Christ is that we can come. We now have access where we didn't have access before. Christians are described as having access into the very presence of God. We don't have to go through priests anymore. We don't have to have the priests go for us. We have access into His presence. We have great privilege of that access. So the inference here is come to Him. Keep on coming to Him. You can come to Him now as believers. And He's telling the people of Asia Minor, as He's telling us, come to Him and let Him do a work in your life. Let Him do some things in your life. We'll come to those in a minute. But the point now is come to Him. Because you are in the center. You're in the center of what God is doing. You see, that's, that's what was happening to those people in Asia Minor. That's what can happen to us. We, we just kind of get this idea God has somehow forsaken us. But what Peter wants to say to them is if you're a Christian, if, if, if God has, has uh, redeemed you and all that Christ has done has been appropriated to you because you've trusted in Him, You have access. You can come. You're in the center of what God is doing. This is what God is about in the world. What is happening to you. And we'll describe that in a minute. I remember when my children were were growing up, we just married our last two in three months. Two weddings in three months. That, That is the trek to have. But they're all married now. They're out of the home. But as they were as they were growing up, one of my concerns as a pastor was that they would see what happened here at Richland in the wrong way. They would see it as a kind of parochial kind of thing. In other words, it's just kind of happening here 
and, and not on a grander scale. One of my hopes as a parent, and I didn't always do it as well as I should have done, but I wanted to, I wanted to connect them to the larger thing that God was doing. And I did not want them to grow up and think this was just a, a local church thing or a Richland church thing or a denominational thing. But they were connected to a much greater thing that God was doing. And, and I think that's really what Peter is trying to say to them there. Because if, if you think it's just a, a local thing, a, a thing that's happening just here, it's, it's just a church thing, but not part of a grander picture, I, I fear as you grow up then you just kind of can easily cast it aside and, and you don't get the strength of it. The, the thing that I wanted my kids to know is that this is what God is doing in the world. You are a part of it here in this local locality, but it's happening all over the globe. All over the world, God is saving a people. A people who will rest on Christ. That's what God is doing. That's what was happening to those people in Asia Minor. They were a part and they were at the very epicenter of what God was doing in the world. Even though at times it didn't seem like that. Even though it seemed at times that God was slow in fulfilling His promise. And they wondered or were tempted to wonder if God had somehow abandoned them and forgotten them there as they suffered persecution. So what I want to do today is, uh, is look at what Peter said. Because Peter was doing a little bit what I was doing for my children. Trying to connect them to the bigger picture of what God was doing. Bigger picture of what he was working in their lives. I hope it will strengthen your heart this morning. As we look at it today, let's, let's begin to do that. We find it as we read on from verse 4. The first thing that Peter was doing was, was causing them to be able to know that they would never be put to shame. They would never ultimately be disappointed. Or what the scripture said this morning on the screen out of the New International Version from Isaiah 28, they would not be dismayed. That particular text, I've shared this with you before, but that particular text, which I first found in Psalm 25, he who believes in me will never be put to shame. You'll find that text over in the book of Romans a number of times as well. And all over Scripture, God continues to say that he who believes in me, he who rests here as he points it out, on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, will not be disappointed. If you put your hope there and there only, you can be assured that it will not lead to disappointment. And what he says again and again and again in this text is that. You will not be disappointed. God, in fact, in verse 7, it says this of the text, So the honor is for you. In fact, not only will you not be disappointed, but in one sense, God will honor you because your hope is there. It rests there. That's an incredibly important promise to know. All of us have, have fear of shame in our lives. You, you can remember a time when you were, were put to shame. Can you remember it? Remember how as you're put to shame, it just kind of rises up the, the heat in your face? I, I've told this story before, but some of you are new. I remember that distinctly one day when I was a teenager and I was working in a grocery store. 
And across the parking lot, smoke was billowing out of a house. And somebody ran in and pointed that out to me. And immediately we ran to the telephone of that grocery store and called the fire department. And before I could come from that telephone back about halfway to where I started out when I was told, somebody met me and just all I heard was the word barbecue. That's all I heard. But I knew exactly what they... In other words, what, what had happened is what I thought was a fire, what I thought was a billowing black smoking fire was an old-fashioned barbecue grill with charcoal that had just been lit on a porch behind a car that I couldn't see. And I remember the shame that just rose up from me. Just just rose up my face. I just got hot. We hate that. We hate being put to shame. We will avoid it at all costs. And And the Bible says, ultimately, you don't have to worry about that as a believer. If your hope is in Christ, ultimately, you will not be put to shame at the day of Christ. When His grace is fully revealed at the day of Jesus Christ, you won't be put to shame. You won't. You don't have to worry about that. He says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. It's important for you to hear that. It was important for them to hear that. They had not put their hope in a place that would ultimately disappoint them. Young person, you need to hear that today. If you put your hope in Christ, you will not be sorry for that. In fact, what the Scripture goes on to say is that that others will. It says, the stone that the builders rejected, in verse, going on from verse 7, has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Another thing that he's saying to them is, you will not be disappointed, but those who reject him will. And in fact, he also goes on to point out that those who reject him, actually, in their rejection, are fulfilling what God had prophesied to happen. Look at what it says in verse 8, the latter part. It says, They stumble because they disobey the word and they, as they were destined to do. There's a sense in which their very rejection is working the purposes of God. You think to yourself, I'm trusting in God. Is this really the purpose of God for me to trust in Christ? Is there in fact only one way? If I put all my eggs in this basket and this basket alone, am I going to be disappointed? The Bible says, no, you won't. And in fact, those who reject that will be the ones who ultimately actually fulfill the purposes of God. Listen to what it says in the Scripture, in the text, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. This is what the Scripture says. This man, this man speaking of Christ, This is Peter, the day of Pentecost as well. This man, Christ, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. It was God's, the Father's, set purpose and foreknowledge that this cornerstone would be rejected by some and fulfill the very purpose of God. So not only will you be disappointed, 
that you won't be at the center of the purpose of God. But those who reject him are also in the center of the purpose of God, but to a very different end. A very different end. There's a text. Isaiah chapter 8. If you want to turn to Isaiah, if you have it, but otherwise, just listen to what it says. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 8 says in this comparison, in this contrast. Let me begin reading verse 11. It says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And then it says this, and he will be a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. For some he will be a sanctuary and for some he will be a rock of offense and a rock of stumbling. It's the same thing that it's talking about in Peter. Some, you, you Christians of Asia Minor, have rested on that cornerstone. And if you're rested on that cornerstone, he will be a sanctuary to you. But for others, he will be a stone of offense. That particular text in Isaiah chapter 8 is what Peter most certainly must have been thinking about when he writes these words to us in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 8 um, other, other particular texts that he talks about, Isaiah, Psalm 118, Isaiah chapter 28, all of those texts talk about Christ being a stone, a cornerstone or a stone of offense. So, first thing that he wants us to know is you won't be disappointed. You will not be disappointed if your hope is in all that this represents. If that's what you're resting in. One of the things we said in this series, and I think brings it to, to our day, that is not a very popular notion today. The whole idea of, of resting alone in that is, is not popular today. In this, in this pluralistic age, it's going to become less popular. You're going to get, and I say this, unless things dramatically change, you're going to get more and more marginalized if you believe that. You're going to be seen as, as small thinking, You're going to be seen as narrow. You're going to be seen all kinds of other descriptions. To to have the presumption that there is just one cornerstone is not going to be popular. It wasn't popular in their day. It's not popular in my day. And unless God intervenes, unless there's a new great awakening in our country, it probably is going to get worse before it ever gets any better, if it ever does. We are moving that way and we are moving there quickly. It's amazing to me how quickly our culture is shifting that direction. So I say to you, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted to want to buy in to that pluralistic notion. You're going to be tempted to want to buy into what the culture is saying is how can there only be one way? How can there only be one cornerstone? But I say to you, it is, it is bedrock to Christians. It, it is not negotiable to Christians to buy into that. Now, you may decide. You may decide that you want to believe that. I've said that to you. 
you can decide to believe that there are multiple ways to heaven. The air we breathe in our culture says that to you. But that is not what Christianity teaches. What Christianity teaches is there is one cornerstone, and it's Christ. And our only hope needs to rest there. It's not a matter of having our feet in two places, in one place. And the Bible says, you'll not be disappointed. Oh, your culture may may scorn you. Your friends may wonder about you. But ultimately, you will not be disappointed. They will. That's what Christianity teaches. Now, there's a number of other things that happen. This is what I want to do, and then we're going to come to the table. I want to talk about some other ways he tried to encourage them. He started out by that. He started out, you're resting on the cornerstone, and in fact, you are a stone being built on that cornerstone. Look at what it says in the Scripture. As as you come to him, a living stone, he's a living stone in, in, in uh, comparison to the stones that were in the temple, we'll, we'll explain that in a little bit, but he's a living stone. He's not like the stones of the temple. He's a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You're, you're being built on that cornerstone. That rests there, you're starting to be built on top of that. All believers are being built. That's what God is doing. He is building a spiritual house. And Christ is the cornerstone. That's what God's doing. If you're one of those spiritual stones, you're in the middle of the building project God is in process of building. You need to see that. You see that metaphor. That's what He wanted those people to see. That God was working. He was building them into the building. And it goes on to say that you are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Take the spiritual house first. Remember I said it's a living stone is in comparison to the stones of the temple. You see, the, that particular thing, that structure, that spiritual building that God is building is the new temple. It's the place where God now resides. He resides in His people who are His church. He no longer resides in a temple. That was a picture. That was a shadow. But now the temple of God is this that He's building, is the cornerstone and all the stones that are being put on top of it. And God dwells in the midst of that, in the midst of His people. The picture is the temple. The reality is the church. A second thing that it says, you are a holy priesthood. Now, now if you see that, that illusion, that he kind of changes metaphors in one sense, but maybe a better way, to, he goes from the metaphor of being a spiritual house to being a holy priesthood. How do you connect those two together? Maybe you can't. Maybe it's just such a, a grand thing he's trying to say that he jumps from one metaphor to another. And so he's just, he's just exuding these metaphors out of him, trying to, trying to convey to these people the privilege they have, that they're in the center of what God's doing. But maybe it's also that his picture of that building stone is not so much just a rectangular building that God is building with Christ being the cornerstone, but, but really it's more dynamic than that, that those stones are, are, are the holiness and faith. They're, they're, they're made up 
of the holiness and faith of his people. In other words, you see those stone, we're stone being put on the cornerstone, but, it, but it's not just a stone, but it's, a, it's the holiness and faith of his people consists of that stone. So this building that he's building consists of multitudes of the holiness and faith of his people being constructed together. And he dwells in the midst of that. And then it says, not only are you a spiritual house, but you're a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Another picture for us. Another picture that he's giving of what God is doing from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when a priest went into the Holy of Holies, he he went through an elaborate, elaborate ceremony of cleansing. He had, to, he had to go through all kinds of hurdles, jump through all kinds of hoops before he could go once a year into the Holy of Holies and represent the people there. That's what a priest did. A priest represented the people. They couldn't have direct access. They had to have access through the priest. And this priest had to be cleansed. Now, you see, the picture is we have to be cleansed to have access. Remember, I just, I just said to you, as you come to him, we now have access But the access we have now is because of Christ. He is our cleansing. You see, a priest was just showing us the picture. In order to come into God's presence, there had to be a cleansing. There had to be a picture of cleansing. You couldn't just rush in there without without preparation. Our preparation is Christ. Our preparation is the righteousness of Christ. The cleansing we need is His righteousness to be clothed in His righteousness so that we can have access now. We don't have to go through a priest. There's no need of a priest anymore. You don't need somebody to get between you and God anymore and make sacrifice. You can go directly to Him. We have direct access. He was saying to them, as you come to Him, you can come to Him because you're a holy priesthood. You are priests in one sense. All believers are priests. The priesthood of believers, we all are priests. We can all make sacrifice, but no longer is it the animal sacrifice. We don't go into the temple and sacrifice an animal as the priest did. We have a different kind of presentation, a different kind of sacrifice that we make. It says to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable God through Jesus Christ. The sacrifices we make are our lives we personally begin to make spiritual sacrifice of our own selves. The things that we do through Jesus Christ. We, we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. This morning, your worship is a spiritual sacrifice to God. When you, when you make efforts to go out and, and, and reach your neighbors for Christ, you, you make sacrifices. Those become spiritual sacrifices to Him in order to win the nations. When, when you give away goods to the poor, you are making spiritual sacrifices directly to God in those cases through Jesus Christ. He's the reason that we can do that. We no longer need a mediator. You see, again and again and again, what Peter is doing, which is so amazing, he's taking the Old Testament pictures and he's saying, okay, you're the fulfillment of that. You're the fulfillment of what this was picturing in the Old Testament. You are the temple of God now. You are the priests now. You can make sacrifices now, just like they made sacrifices. But those were not the reality. This is. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to say, you're in the middle. You are right in the middle of what God is doing. 
in this world. You weren't destined to reject this cornerstone, but you're standing on it. And all this is happening in your life. Listen to how he sums it up. After, you know, he begins by saying, your living stones being built in a spiritual house to be a holy priestess to offer spiritual sacrifices. Then he uses that illustration of, of the stone, the cornerstone, and some who reject it. And then he says this of them. After he talks about many being destined to reject it. But you are not those. You are a chosen race. Chosen race. Wasn't that, wasn't that Israel? No. No, there's another picture, isn't there? A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Once you were not in the center of what he was doing, but now you are. You are the people whom God is saving. You are the people from the beginning whom God set out to save. You're right in the center of what God is doing. Listen to how Wayne Gruden sums it up in his commentary, and then we're going to come to the table this morning. He writes this. So in verses 4 to 10, Peter says that God has bestowed on the church almost all the blessings promised to Israel in the Old Testament. The dwelling place of God is no longer the Jerusalem temple, for Christians are the new temple of God. The priesthood able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God is no longer descended from Aaron, for Christians are now the true royal priesthood with access before God's throne. God's chosen people are no longer said to be those physically descended from Abraham, for Christians are now the true chosen race. The nation blessed by God is no longer the nation of Israel, for Christians are now God's true holy nation. The people of Israel are no longer said to be people of God, for Christians, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, are now God's people, and those who have received mercy. Moreover, Peter takes these quotations from the context which repeatedly warn that God will reject his people who persist in rebellion against him, who reject the precious cornerstone which he has established. What more could be needed in order to say with assurance that the church has now become the true Israel of God? The church, the church is at the center of what God is doing. From all eternity, you are at the center of what God is doing. We need to hear that, people. We need to hear that again and again. We need to remind ourselves of that. It's what Peter knew would strengthen the hearts of those Christians in Asia Minor all those years ago, and it's what strengthens our hearts today. God help us. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that that you will strengthen our hearts. That you will strengthen the hearts of those who have tasted that you are good. Strengthen the hearts of those who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. Strengthen the hearts of those who the Bible describes as being born again. Lord, 
Strengthen their hearts today. Strengthen them as they come to this table. Help them to realize that they are at the center of your work in this world. And that because they have rested on the cornerstone of Christ, because they've not rejected Him, because they've trusted in Him, they will not be disappointed. You will fulfill your promises. All of your promises will be fulfilled. None of them will be left unfulfilled. And they will be filled, fulfilled for the most part in the church, in those called out ones of whom many here are part of. God, help us to be strengthened by that today. Help us to be strengthened now as we come to this table. On the night you were betrayed, Lord, you took these things. You took the bread. You took the wine and you broke it and you gave it to your people and declared, do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance that I'm faithful to my promise. In Jesus' name. Amen.